Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. This morning, we're going to continue Matthew chapter 5. So if you've not already turned there, Matthew chapter 5. It seems like uh, from northeastern Kentucky, which is where I'm from, it takes a lot more effort to say five than it does five. But uh, when I hear this back, it uh, drives me nuts, you know, that we believe in Jesus Christ. And uh, so it bothers me too. Matthew chapter 5. We're gonna, we've been looking at the Beatitudes of, of Jesus, uh, that he begins his very first sermon uh, by describing some very key kingdom principles. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times they remain hidden or secret or at least unfollowed as if they are, you know, maybe early on something that he was launching with, but we forget how important they are uh, in an ongoing relationship with Christ. And the, the idea of beatitude, for those of you who may not have been here last week, we talked about um, the, the word actually means, comes from uh, the word of flourishing, to flourish, uh, to do exceedingly wonderful. And that's not just, uh, so the, the important thing I think for us to understand is in this context, it's not your opinion or your definition of flourishing, it's, it's, it's God's uh, uh, definition for us. And so, in other words, it's God's view of our life. God, in other words, would say, boy, that person is flourishing. That's much different because my idea of flourishing and God's idea of me flourishing might not always be compatible. And so, for the follower of God or the seeker of God, we would want to know that what is God's opinion of us? I mean, how many of us have ever said, I really wish I knew what God thought of me? Well, here's how you can know, is to follow this list, and it's, it's pretty definitive in that we know how God, because God himself tells us, if you will live this way, you will be deemed flourishing. Okay, so all of that, getting back to the word blessed, it means to be able to live in such a way as to have God's smile upon us, or to have God's favor upon us, to have the applause of heaven. heaven. Now, this is not... This is not just uh, happiness like a, a smile on our face because happiness is affected by the things outside of us. Happiness is affected by our circumstances. But this approval of God is something that transcends simple happiness and externalities of circumstance. So last week we looked at the first step to flourishing in verse 3, and that is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is really a paradox. In fact, all of these attitudes and all of these core values, these kingdom principles, are paradoxes. Poor in spirit means to have a poverty of spirit, of course. It means to bow low, but to look up. That's literally what the word means, to bow low, but to look up. 
And so we recognize we have nothing to offer God that leads us to humility, but that humility gives way to something greater, which is, so where does my strength come? Where does my help come? It comes from the Lord. And so that's what the attitude of poor in spirit actually is, is to recognize I have nothing. God is everything. Now, what is the, re- what is the response of, of entering into this mental knowledge of I am nothing, I have nothing to offer, God is everything. Well, you'll have the kingdom, right? You will have the kingdom, for theirs is the kingdom. Is is possessive. You will have it. So it's a proper confession of who we truly are. We have nothing good in us, and as Jesus said, there is nothing good but God. Nothing in us. Listen, In a world of self-help, in a world of what do you think, in a world of what do you feel, in a world that says take advantage where you can take advantage, this is being lost quickly. To be able to say, I am nothing that makes me worthy of God's applause. I am nothing. To be completely emptied out of self. Now, most of us have no trouble emptying ourselves a little bit, and saying, I recognize I'm a sinner, I recognize my need for God, but that's not what poverty of spirit means. It means to be completely emptied of any personal value. So, when we truly recognize that this is the place that we are in, what does he give us? When we recognize that we are unworthy of the kingdom, what does he give us? The kingdom. Isn't that tremendous? There are three kingdoms at work in this world. There's the kingdom of the flesh, the kingdom of of this age. It's the world system apart from God. We currently live, for those of us who are Christians, we live in in the kingdom of God. This is under God's principles and God's rule and God's sovereignty and be able to see through God's eyes and to be able to live out your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's also the kingdom of heaven. That is the kingdom that will be for all eternity. And we are fortunate as Christians to already live in the kingdom that is now, but there is a kingdom that is to come. The kingdom that is now prepares us for the kingdom that is to come. This is really good news. So I want you to recognize what Jesus is saying. If you cannot recognize your unworthiness of this kingdom that is here, Well, you're not qualified for the kingdom that is to come. But the very moment that you recognize your unworthiness, you get the whole kingdom. Isn't that crazy? You don't have to prove your worth. You don't have to become somebody. You don't have to work on proving to God how valuable you are. This is why you are saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves. He loved you first. Man, this poverty of spirit is something that... We just, we fight and we jockey for positions and we're looking for opportunities to prove that we're somebody, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But the truth of the matter is, that is such a distraction from the kingdom, the real kingdom. Now, you can be something pretty impressive in the kingdom of this world and even be a good person. But that is not being somebody in this world is not the same thing as being someone in the kingdom of God. So now for the first time in our lives, we, are, we have the ability to see 
through kingdom eyes. So, that is step one. If you want to try to flourish apart from step one, and everything here that we're going to go over the next couple of weeks, these, these, are, these are areas of people's lives where they really, really work to be somebody. But if you try to flourish apart from God's applause, it's going to lead you in continual conflict, confusion, chaos, and crisis. You cannot achieve the other attitudes, values, if you bypass the unworthiness of the first one. So the second one is, blessed are those, or you will flourish if you mourn, for you will be comforted. Now this is, you, we think of personal sorrow, you think of maybe getting laid off or being betrayed by a friend or experiencing some marital conflict or, or, or suffering through abandonment or loneliness, maybe losing a loved one to death or receiving a bad medical report. You know, how do you respond, right? How do you respond when, when terrible personal sorrow happens? So when, when disappointment strikes, I mean, I know that there's a level, you know, I know we prioritize how bad is it, but, you know, a lot of times when, when tragedy occurs in our life, we try to tell ourselves, I'm okay, I'm okay, right? And what that means is, I'm not okay. Uh, when we try to normalize tragedy, we, think about this. How many times have you ever been at the funeral home and you're grieving, mourning, the loss of a loved one, and someone in the good measure of their heart tries to say something to make it better. Anybody ever tried to encourage you when you are in mourning? It doesn't go too well, does it? There's not a whole lot of comfort that comes from the, well, God wanted them more than you did or needed them more than you did. Or, my goodness, I'm not even going into it. Uh, I hear the worst of the worst of people meaning well when people are mourning, but our ability to salve someone, to help someone, to nurture someone, unless it, it, it doesn't work. There is no satisfaction for the wounded, for the wounded heart. So we say, I'm fine, it's fine, I'm okay. Friends chime in, well, it's okay, there's a better job right around the corner. God's got something better for you, right? What we're saying is, ooh, that hurts. It's incredibly uncomfortable. What can we say that will relieve the tension? Well, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Oh, good. I'm so glad you told me that. Because here I was. We try to, and I want you to, I really do want us to think about it. And, and this morning, we'll talk about it in a little bit. This morning isn't simply the morning of, the, you know, the sorrow of losing a loved one to death. In fact, that's not at all what this word means. This isn't about death. This is about difficulty and crisis and heartache. Just the heartache of life, the difficulties of life, the stresses of life. So, we work so hard to minimize sorrow. 
Why do you think that is? Why do you think that our society works so hard to minimize, to pass over, to gloss over the most difficult realities of life? To try our best to get back to normal again. To try, back, to try our best to get back to a place where we can laugh again. Victor Frankl, if you're not familiar with him, you need to, you need to study uh, him and, and read uh, some of his writings. He was an Austrian neurologist, and he was arrested by Nazi authorities, and he was sent to Auschwitz. And uh, he was forced to dig a tunnel for uh, a water main and, and re- was required to do that day after day after day. And uh, he had no help and often would go days and days without eating or drinking. Uh, it's trying his best to scratch out a living. And remember, he's a neurologist, and so he has a kind of a medical background. But he's watching these, these other men living out their life in these death camps. And he watched many suffer brutally and die often, most often, committing suicide just to escape their pain. But he remembered uh, reading the works of uh, uh, Fyodor uh, Dostoevsky, who wrote these words, and you also ought to read him. He's a lot harder to read. But he says this, There is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. Just think about that for a moment. The one thing I fear most is not to be worthy of my sufferings. What does he mean? It means the thing that I fear most is to suffer and it not have meaning. And so Frankel continued to remember these words from this Russian writer and he began to process what does it mean? What, what's the difference between this person who makes it and this person who taps out? And the answer is suffering must have meaning. And that's what Viktor Frankl, and in fact, there's entire movements that have adopted his teaching on suffering and difficulty. And across the board, it's always true. If you can find meaning and purpose in your suffering, you can endure suffering. But if suffering doesn't have meaning, and there's no thinking behind it, if there's no processing behind it, you'll tap out pretty quick. Frankel learned that pain must have purpose in order to survive it. That's what caused some to live and some to commit suicide. In fact, he wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning, and he said, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering the very moment it finds meaning. Now, not to be compared to a Jewish concentration camp, but our suffering must find meaning. And it can only find meaning when we understand the sovereignty of God and his ability to work in all things. You can only understand that completely if you are already living in his kingdom. I'm going to shift gears. This is a hard shift too. So it's almost in many ways like I'm just going to start over. So I'm going to... I'm going to maybe meddle for just a moment. Our modern technological age has created, and I remember when a lot of that started with the, hey, we're going to save so much time. This new technology of cell phones and 
smartphones and computers and location services and all of these sorts of... Think of the, the word... I remember learning how to type on a keyboard. I remember that. And contrary to my gray hair, I'm not that old. The world has changed rapid fire. I remember when you had to print paper for people to see it. Now you can just push a button and share it. It's crazy. I'm trying my best to keep up. Uh, but anyway, uh, that will have, that will have uh, uh, a deadline on it as well. But our wheels are always turning at such rapid rates. If we cease to produce for very long, we go crazy. We become restless. And we don't even know how to process the restlessness in us. Contemplating meaning in this world is so hard when every spare moment is filled with a phone in our hand. There is no downtime. If we have downtime, it's screen time. I think, somebody turn my mic up. I don't think it, anybody can hear me. It's quiet. Listen, and especially, especially parents, I want you to listen to me. Contemplation requires quiet stillness and focus practices that are rapidly disappearing in our society and it's not another way it is destroying us it 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 is rewiring us you you think that you have downtime and so you grab your phone and you check your messages you check your email you check your notifications, whatever it may be. But the truth of the matter is, that's not as simple. I've got a couple of seconds. It's a deprivation of the dopamine that your brain has decided that it desperately needs, this adrenaline rush that pumps into your brain. And we think that, we don't think through that. Every time that happens, we are rewiring ourselves to process in a different way. There are many universities, Division I schools with the greatest accreditations. I'm not going to list some of them. But they are infrequently requiring full-length books to be read by undergraduate students because they can't see them all the way through. They get started, but they're not reading books all the way through. And so they give them synopsis. Textbooks aren't written with lots of background. They're written with just the facts because people don't want to know how do we get there. They don't want to have to figure it out. They just want to know since this is true, then this must be true. It's destroying us. Students aren't the only people who are struggling with this. There is a best-selling book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. In that book, uh, the author, Nicholas Carr, explains how our brains are being rewired by the use of internet and social media. Here's what he said. The net may well be the single most powerful mind-altering technology that has come into general use. By the way, he's not a Christian. This doesn't just fit the narrative. Mind-altering. Maybe it's an exaggeration. But decades before Nicholas Carr wrote that, there was another communications theorist, Marshall McLuhan, who wrote, uh, it's, a, it's a paper called Understanding Media. 
He said this, the medium is the message. What it means is, is the message is not the thing that we're looking at. It's how we're receiving the message that's the big deal. Now, you think about that, and we're going to talk about it in just a second. But first, I want to say this. This book was written in 1964. So this isn't a knock on social media or smartphones. 1964, the medium is the message. The message that affects us most today may not be the content of our technology, but the technology of the content. The form of delivery is just as powerful as the content that is delivered. It's not so much the information that we're receiving, it's the fact that we move on past it so quickly. That's the problem. We don't have time to process it. So it's bad news, bad news, bad news. And you know what our thumb is doing? Oh, there's another. There's another school shooting. There's another arrest. There's another wildfire. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, I really interested in that one. Share, boom, it's gone. Somebody else just got to scroll right past the one you scrolled. There's no processing. You know, people are arrested for the worst imaginable things. And in the moment, we think, that's terrible. Scroll, what's next? What's next? What's next? There was a time when we had to think about the news. How do you feel about what you're hearing? Now we talk about what the news anchors feel about what we're thinking. And we're looking for people who agree with us, not people who feel with us. It's destroying us. You want to know why there's very little comfort in the world today? Because there's almost no mourning. And you think it's an accident? Let me tell you something. There's a satanic attack to destroy our mourning because there's a satanic attack against our comfort. Our being comforted in his kingdom. So we're buying whatever sells. I know, pastor, stick to the Bible, stay out of the news. I get it, I know, stay in your lane, pastor. It's not the fact that there was another school shooting. It's that we absorbed the school shooting without any reflection. We didn't think about it. We didn't feel about it. You know, it seems like is again, I'm, I know I'm meddling now. That, this isn't Bible. But it seems like there was this, this, this shift when we started watching the news 24 hours a day. I'm not opposed to the news. I love the news. In fact, if I've got any downtime waiting on something and the TV is on, I'm probably watching the news. Or it's on while I'm scrolling. <laughs> uh, it's probably more like it. How do y'all feel about that? I'm just kidding. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm fine. It's okay. I'm fine. (laughs) So it makes sense then when terrible things happen to us personally and to those that we love dearly because we've been rewired, we don't know how to process You think about the emotional immaturity of today's youngest generations. You think that's just because of a generation issue? No, they've been conditioned to be rewired to process life differently. 
We get anxious. We get obnoxious. We get absent. We fight or we flight. We laugh or we ignore or we shut down. The medium is the message. It's also operative when reading online. I mean, you think about you're reading an article and, uh, you know, you, you, get, you hear a ding and you divert and you go over here and you see this. Oh, that's a cute kangaroo jumping and hitting people. That's really cute. And you know, I, was, I was over here. Oh, there's a scroll line of something else happening. And then there's comments over here in the side and we're checking back and we're like, I feel like I was doing something. Have you ever, have you ever just been going through life and you're like, what was I, what was I doing just now? That's not you getting old. Your brain is rewiring. Your brain is rewiring. Neuroscientists point out that the rapid fragmented consumption of information rearranges the neurons in our brains. And as a result, the ability to keep a train of thought is very difficult. Our reading habits rewire us for rapid consumption of data, but not reflection. Every little, so I'm going to go back two or three weeks now, okay? Of course, two or three weeks. This is why every little interruption, every little disturbance in our life just throws us off. We like the reflective habits necessary to discover and relish meaning and makes hardship of a moral endeavor. So instead, we've started to just to view suffering as an inconvenience or an inefficiency. If, if Satan can rewire our brains, or if we will allow our brains to be rewired, understand this removes the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. It ceases us from growing, developing, ministering, and comforting others. We've actually lost the ministry of reconciliation that's one of the primary benefits of being able to be in the kingdom of heaven is we move from I know that I'm unworthy now I get the kingdom and now as soon as I walk into that kingdom I can feel my unworthiness right we move from intellect to feeling in one short step blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall have the kingdom And as soon as you step into it, you feel it. Overcome with sorrow. I knew it, and now I feel it. And you know what the very first thing the Holy Spirit does as soon as you feel it? Comforts you. All right, shifting back. I have to shift it up a lot because we don't listen like this anymore. We have to listen like this. I'm just kidding, sort of. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, I know that it's a paradox, but this is actually how it would read. Blessed or happy are the unhappy. Happy are the sad. Or there's gladness in sadness. It's absolute opposites. All of these keys of the kingdom, the keys to flourishing, are paradoxes. 
Jesus is giving us his kingdom values. If you will confess, you will get the kingdom. If you are contrite, you will get relief. That's what the first two Beatitudes say. Look at verse 3. There is a progression that moves from the first Beatitude to the second. From verse 3 to verse 4, from verse 4 to verse 5, and so on. None of them are isolated. You can't just say, well, this is the one I want to focus on right now because one begets the next one. It's a, it's a, it's a linear process here. I want you to notice the very first words of Jesus's, well, first public sermon. I don't know what Jesus's first words were. But his first words that he uttered, you would think, would be peace. But that's not what he said. In fact, he said just the opposite of that. These are not comforting words. He enters into this great first sermon describing what the nation of Israel needed to do if they were to come back to God. These are, these are actually violent words. These are not popular words. They are destructive words. They're the words that cut to the quick, that deal a deathly blow to any sort of self-reliance, any form of self-righteousness. That's why the world around us doesn't like the teachings of Jesus. They love his miracles. They do not like his teaching because they cut to the quick. We want him to feed us, but when he says, I am the bread of life, whoa, you're... You're getting too close. I don't know how I feel about that. It's brokenness that causes emotional mourning needs to be, it needs to be destroying. Because listen, and I, I'm getting ready to shift gears again, so listen to this. If there's anything left of you when, we came, when you came to God for salvation, if there's anything of you left, you can't be saved. He doesn't just save us a little bit. He doesn't just save the parts that we give to him. That's why this message is so destroying because everything about us must be destroyed so that he can build us back up in his kingdom. That's why we don't like it. Because we really like ourselves. I'm okay. I'm fine. Of all the things that man can feel, serious is not one that we have grown to like. Think about the people you want to be around. We try to avoid the people that are serious. That's why there's such a push for levity, laughter, tapping out, vacations every weekend, event to event to event. What are we going to do now? 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 Get togethers, friends, no downtime. Even in our downtime, we can't avoid finding ourselves in front. You know, the, uh, the big thing now, and I know, I, listen, I'm a practitioner of all of this. I get it. It's one of the reasons why it hurts to even preach it. But you know, the number one uh, uh, cause of depression in America right now? Binge watching. Isn't that crazy? Hello? Listen, I'm, I'm not an old fuddy-duddy yet. If I'm preaching this same message in 20 years, you can say, ha, eh, old-fashioned. I'm not that old yet. But I'm telling you, especially young people, listen to me. You have control of this. 
it is destroying you. It is destroying your children. They cannot feel at the level that they need to be able to feel for the kingdom's sake. And I'm not saying we deprive them. I'm saying that we're offering them a substitute comfort. We've lost our desire for sacred things, taking anything seriously. Now, even now, I know why it's quiet in here because we feel like something's being taken away from us. But the truth of the matter is what God's trying to do is to give us something that's got merit to it, to give us something real that can never be taken away. Think about what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, I say this so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. <laughs> what? Did you just say that you're, set, you're telling me this so that I will have peace? I can't wait. Lottery numbers? No, you're going to have trouble. Well, that ain't good news. Oh, but take heart. I've overcome the world. That's great news for guys who's getting ready to lay their head down on a chopping block. I mean, I didn't see it coming that way. Right? We don't see it coming that way. Peace comes from conflict. Yet when you can see the kingdom from here, because then this conflict has meaning and purpose behind it. God is forming us, crafting us into something. God is about to reveal the Holy Spirit in us and through us. That's, that's pretty awesome. For some weird reason, we, even the people of God, would prefer our kingdom of this world comfort more than we prefer the kingdom of God comfort. Now, don't get me wrong. Laughter does become medicine. Think of this. Uh, anybody watch? Well, you don't have to answer. Don't answer, in fact. Uh, late news. You watch the news at night, and it's just bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. Most of the time, every now and then, they'll give you something. It's mostly bad news. And as soon as it goes off, what comes on? Late night TV, where they make fun of bad news. Because that makes us feel better. You watch something on TV that's pretty serious. You follow it with uh, Andy Griffith or I Love Lucy because I don't like how I feel right now. I want to feel differently before I go to sleep, right? We, we want to alter the way we feel. And I say that because I know what I watch when I want to feel better. You think of, I remember the first time I realized this. I was pretty young, but I remember when the Challenger blew up. And I remember all of the inappropriate jokes that immediately came as a result. You look at all the devastation of the world and you will always find people trying to laugh it off, find a way to just joke right out of it because that's a whole lot easier than feeling. You ever been in a room where you need somebody to break the tension of the room because they just can't, they just can't feel? It's even happened in the church. I know there are people that 
will change churches, separate from people because they want to go to church and leave feeling good about themselves every week. I hear this. I know that for an absolute fact. And so where are we going to go to church? We're going to a church that only encourages, that only tells us the good things, who never, never steps on our toes. I want to find someone who doesn't talk about sin, one of the, one of the most uh, prolific pastors in America, if you want to call him that, says, I will not preach on sin because there's enough preachers who already do that. My people can just listen to those guys if they want to hear about sin. And here's why pastors don't preach about sin, because I love you. And I don't want you to go to another church. I want you to stay here. So I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to itch your ears. And as long as you'll itch mine. And we don't know how to, we don't know how to process feelings. Well, mournfulness that Jesus is talking about here is not being perpetually sad and downtrodden and negative. Of course, that's not what he says. In fact, Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22, that laughter does like a medicine. It makes, makes a heart merry like medicine. And we know that that is a great verse. We should laugh. It makes us feel better. I'm not saying that at all. There's nothing wrong with the smile on your face, face if it is appropriately applied in the kingdom. In fact, if you're a Christian and you don't smile, there's something missing. But this is also not about regular difficulties in our life. The Bible never says that mourning itself is a blessed state. It's not. You remember, there's a couple of quick examples that I'm going to give you. One is the uh, son, uh, Amnon. He began to lust after his, his uh, sister, his half-sister, Tamar. You know, it's not a good story. We don't often focus on this story. But when he found out he couldn't have her, it says he was in mourning. But you know what that mourning did? He didn't have anything to turn on to distract him. He had to feel it. And you know what happens when we have to feel it? We can recognize that, why am I feeling like I'm in mourning? And before long, you start processing it. Man, you know what? I'm being selfish. Lord, I'm so sorry. I have nothing to offer you. I am so selfish. And you know what he gives us? Comfort. Or I think of, uh, there's lots of other illustrations of that too. I think of Ahab who wanted Naboth's vineyard, but he couldn't have it. And he was mourning because he couldn't have it. But it begins to change our life. Why do I feel downcast? Why do I feel alone? Why do I feel guilty? We begin to process that in quiet solitude. We process it. We find the meaning. And then when you find the meaning, you will find the comfort. Now, very quickly, I'm going I'm to start tying all of it up. There are nine Greek words in the New Testament that are translated mourning. All right? So why I say all of that just to say Jesus could have used any of the nine, but he used the most drastic one. The deepest one. It goes just one level. You remember when, uh, when Joseph, when they went and told Jacob that Joseph had been killed by wild animals? And it says he was mourning. That's, that's what that word means. It's unnatural. When the women came back from the tomb, when Jesus was gone, and they found the disciples, it says that they were mourning and weeping. 
That's a whole nother level of mourning. It's not a, I've lost a friend. It's a, the world is over as we know it. I don't want to live anymore. It's unnatural mourning. It's spiritual mourning. That's the word that Jesus uses here. Not bless the one or the one that is sad, is flourishing, or the one who only focuses on serious things are mourning. No, no, no. The one who recognizes their spiritual ineptitude. The one who can recognize the serious grievousness of our sin before an almighty God. They will be comforted. When's the last time you focused on who he is so that you could rightly see who you are? Listen, when you see him, if you're not mourning your sin, then chances are you've not seen him. I think of Isaiah. The first time I saw the Lord high and lifted up, what was the first thing that he saw? Woe is me, for I am undone. In Psalm 32, you look at verses 3 and 5. Just write this down. I want to read it real quick. Number one to go in just another minute. In verses 3 and 5, for day and night, David said, God's hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. That's the way you feel. I mean, and the only happiness, the only comfort, the only relief that you have is found in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto you, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And here's the result. You have to actually have to go up to the beginning of the chapter, verses 1-2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord does not credit iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. You see that? Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted this is a ceasing from rationalizing your sin this is a ceasing from comparing yourself to other people this is a ceasing of giving yourself the benefit of the doubt this is when you come into the throne room of the kingdom of God and you compare yourself to Jesus himself and every Christian ought to do that from time to time. And when we do, he lifts our head and picks us up. I'm tired of picking myself up. I don't like my own ghosts. So you know what I do when I start feeling my own ghosts? I distract myself. I don't want to feel it anymore. But you know what the truth of the matter is? How many, how many of you remember things in your life that if you could go back, you would not do them again? How many of you have those things in the middle of the night that just haunt you? Oh, a few of you. Good. Well, let me tell you what. If you will believe the promises of God, those things can go away. Here's something the Lord taught me. He does not speak guilt. He speaks conviction. At the end of the pipeline of guilt, here's what it, it's just a dark hole. I can't believe this is what you've done. This is what you will always be. The conviction says, you did it, but here's hope. That's always the voice of God. So listen to me. Don't be afraid of feeling it. Don't be afraid of mourning because God is offering you light at the end of the dark tunnel. And you can live in that. And in that, you will have comfort from God. 
So many of us think it's the voice of God and it's Satan's voice that is keeping us trapped in our past. So we won't mourn because I don't want to feel it again and again and again. But we've got to let it go. Jesus, one of the Holy Spirit's favorite names to call Jesus is the man of sorrows. In Luke 23, if you look at it quickly, you don't have to turn over there. Jesus is carrying his cross and he succumbs to it in the street. They get Simon the Cyrene and, and when they, uh, you know, they put the cross on him, the women that are there and it says that they are weeping and they are mourning and they look at Jesus and he can see that they are weeping and they're mourning and you would pretty much expect Jesus to say, weep not. But that's not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is, don't mourn for me, mourn for yourselves and for your children. He doesn't tell us not to mourn because he knows that in mourning, there will be comfort. I've got a lot more to say about mourning. There are specific reasons why we don't mourn. Number one, we think too highly of ourselves. We're pretty conceited. We justify our sin was not as bad as. Or sometimes we're a little bit too, well, whatever I do, God's going to forgive me anyway, so what difference does it really make? We're incredibly selfish. Sometimes we're, we procrastinate. I'll do that later. There's lots of reasons why we don't want to feel our sin. But just know this. Every time you don't feel, you're grieving the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. And you're, and you're removing from your own self the ability to flourish. So I don't want to feel bad. But what if it brought about a flourishing, a, a conclusion to the pain in our life? When Jesus says, and you will be comforted, he uses the word parakletos. It's the same word that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit. I'm going to bring the Holy Spirit into your life when you are mourning. And he will link arms with you side by side. That's what the word paraclete actually means, is to be side by side with you. What Jesus is actually promising is this. And yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. You want a relationship with Jesus Christ? You might have to feel it. You might have to take a moment, solitude, and just feel his presence. And you will be comforted. You don't have to work on being comforted. You don't have to fix your problem. You don't have to find any remedy. There's nothing that you have to do. If you will mourn your spiritual state, if you will mourn your sin, comforting is something that God will do for you. It happens upon you. Now, I know we've said a lot this morning about mourning, but I think in closer, closing, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is why the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Second Corinthians, this is the last verse that I want to read to you. In verse three, 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Here's what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when you experience the comfort of God, you now have ministry. And so many of us have gone through experiences that we try our best not to remember because they're too painful. Lapses of judgment. Things that we've experienced we don't want anybody else to know. But what Paul says is when you've truly been comforted from your recognizing what God has done for you, you're going to be able to give that comfort away. The Holy Spirit will use his ministry of comfort right through you to the world around you. But if you're not going to feel it, you just carterized yourself off from being useful in the very kingdom that you long to belong in. So I want you to think about that. I'm not saying that we wear shirts telling all the terrible things that we've ever done. What I am saying this is finding opportunities to build into people around you the solutions to the pain that you have found that comes through a right relationship with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and walking around with kingdom eyes. Every time you don't share it, you are eclipsing God's comforting power in a society that is desperate for it. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and comforted to be a comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word this morning. There's a lot more that could be said, but Lord, I pray that we would remember who you are and we'd be able to see who we are. And Lord, that when we see who we are, we would bring that to your throne and we would have your Holy Spirit and your kingdom. And so may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.